Uh, this morning, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're, we're doing our series on uh, being church. Uh, what does it mean to be church? Uh, you know, the concept of church uh, we learned the first week uh, came from Jesus. Words never used in the Bible until Jesus says it. He says, hey, um, by the way, I'm going to build my church. And second sentence, not even hell can stop it. And uh, what a promise. 2,000 years later, where are you sitting this morning? In church. So he, he, was, he was right. He's right up at least to this point. Uh, but that it exists is one thing. What's it about? There's a whole nother thing. Uh, what are we doing? What does he expect? Um, how is he leading us? Uh, what are the priorities? So we started looking at that last week. We started, uh, and I introduced you to a little acronym. I gave it to you on the back of your outline there at the bottom on the right. Uh, and last week we talked about the idea of being unified. We're a team. We're working on something together. Uh, he's the coach. He's, he's the top or whatever. But we have a goal, a, a game per se, that we're playing, and we're, we're trying to win at that game. And we got to be cooperative and on the same page, uh, sharing information and, and being about the business and being unified. So that was last week. This week, uh, we're going to move down the outline to the, the last C, and we're going to talk about culturally relevant. And uh, what we're going to do a little bit differently today, and I know for some of you who are new, you're, you're fine with this, you're okay, but be careful. The people next to you might go into shock. We're going to do two passages today rather than one. I know, <gasps> right? They're both really short uh, and they're quick. One of them you're going to totally recognize, uh, but we're going to get the idea of the church being relevant to our culture from two different places. We're going to hear from Paul first, then we're going to hear from Jesus himself, and we're going to give you maybe three basic concepts about what does church need to be in culture today, and that's what we're doing. First uh, Corinthians chapter 9 is where we're going to start, uh, and we're going to be in verse 19, and you ready? Here we go. Uh, For though I am free from all... I have made myself a servant to all. Paul is in the book of 1 Corinthians talking about what does is, what is church look like? They've just started church in Corinth and he writes a letter to them because in Corinth, they were doing a lot of things in that culture beyond church, right? That's the politically correct way of saying they were in a whole lot of trouble in a whole lot of different areas. Uh, and Paul says, all right, in the midst of that kind of culture, how do you maintain uh, your Christianity? How do you maintain your belief and follow? What, what do you hold fast to? What do you reject? And that kind of thing. And one of the things he gets into is this idea, of, I'm, I'm free from a lot of things we think we're, we were bound by. Free from a lot of rules of Judaism and whatnot, rules of culture. He says, uh, we're free in Christ to do anything. But if you're free in Christ, then what are you going to do with your freedom? It's one of the themes of the book, and he's kind of talking about that when we get to this passage. And that's why he says, though I am free from all, all things, all boundaries, whatever, all that kind of stuff. He says, but in, in the midst of his freedom, he says, I've made myself a servant to how many? All. He's talking about people. And this, this is a different concept because we, in our culture, just like they in Corinth culture, um, they catered to the preferred. Now, we don't do that, do we? Less than five, six times an hour. <laughs> we love to cater. We hang out with people that look like us. Uh, we, we hang out with people who have simple int similar interests as we do. Uh, when people are too differently, we kind of banish them or we just ignore them or whatever. And we, we're really good at that. 
Um, if they're part of another team or another party or another business or the competition uh, or a different gender or a different age group or whatever it is, we find excuses to do separate. And Paul says, no, I put everybody in the same category, the category of those I serve. You see, the game is different when Christ comes on the scene and we're not picking and choosing, well, I'm just going to hang out with the brunettes, you know, blondes, they're trouble right? Uh, which is funny because now you can just go to a hairdresser and get it changed, right? Well, some of us can. Some of us don't have anything to work with, right? Uh, but he says this, he says, and why do I do this? I'm, I'm free, but I serve all, comma, that I might win more of them. Well, Paul's going to use this phrase to win. Uh, and I love the phrase because I'm a sports guy, you know, and the Raiders play today. Uh, but it's the idea of winning what? What's he trying to win? What I really want you to see in the whole acronym of church, of what does it mean to be church, underlying that, overarching it, end of the game for it, is how are we getting people to know who God is? How are we connecting people with God? Right? It's hard enough to do with your own kids who live in your own house or your own spouse. But what about people outside who don't have that much contact with you, rub elbows with you once in a while, maybe share a cubicle next to you or whatever it is. Uh, you see them just a few moments of a day. How do you influence them? As Paul says, our game plan is to win people. Uh, and, and being a sports guy like win, rather than convert or save or whatever. But we're going we're gonna to get an even uh, heavier, weightier phrase than win in a little bit, okay? And we'll see that in a little while, right? But we're trying to win people, so I'm gonna serve all of them. Not some, not the preferred, but I'm gonna serve all of them so we can uh, win them to God. Verse 20, to the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews, right? This is kind of simple. Hey, if you're talking to a Jew, you don't wanna offend them. You, you use phrases that make sense to them and you cater to them. Now, if you're not with a Jew, you're not catering to Jews, when you're talking to, like, say, a Samaritan or whatever, you would, you would cater to the Samaritan. That's the kind of concept. He's going to go through this a bunch of times. He used the word win a bunch more times, right? To those under the law, I became as one under the law. Though not being under myself, the law. That I might win, there's our phrase again, those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. He knows his limitations and his boundaries and where he really stands. But he says, I know when I'm hanging out with people who've got stricter rules than I have, I can hang out under those stricter rules for a little while, makes them comfortable, and now they want to engage with me. Now, I've got some other friends, and they, you know, they're a little, little looser on the rules. They have a little more fun or do more things or whatever, and I can hang out with them too, play by their rules. It's kind of a great concept, culturally relevant. The way you say that in like street language, play by their rules rather than your own, right? Watch Paul as he walks through this. That I might win those outside the law, verse 21. Verse 22, to the weak, I became weak. Now, when Paul talked about being under the law, did he say he was under the law? He said, no, I can act like I'm under the law for those who are under the law. When he talked about being outside the law, did he say he was outside the law? No, he said, I'm kind of outside the law, but I'm really under the law of Christ. And when he's talking about being weak, is he really weak? He doesn't view himself that way, right? Don't ever do that. Don't view yourself as weak. 
You're strong. You're exactly the strength God made you to be. Paul says, I've become weak to the weak that I might win the weak. I play down at their level if I need to for their benefit. You see the outward focus. I'm gonna relate and be relevant to them on the page that they're at. It's really pretty cool. Like you ever, you ever talk to a kid? You ever talking to a kid? And then when you're talking to the kid, you realize that you, you really wanna be connected to the kid. And so what do you do? You go like this, hey, how's it going? Let me, sh- let me see that picture, right? Some of you are in the back like, what's he doing? I'm just getting down on their level, right? And that's kind of what Paul's getting at. How do you get on their level? I've become all things to all people that I, by all means, might save some. Guys, that's one of my favorite verses. I love that verse. One of the things I like about it is how many times it uses the word all. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become how many things? He's, he's like, whatever it takes, I'm going to get their attention. Whatever it takes, I'm going to cater to them. Right? I've become all things to how many people? All people. that By how many means? All right, okay, good. I might save some. What happened to the all? What happened to the all? I thought we were doing all, like every time, right? And then all of a sudden, Paul drops a sum on me. What happened? If you, if you try really, really hard all the time, will it always work? No, there's another side of the equation, isn't there? There's always another person on the other end. And it, they might make a decision that it doesn't matter how hard you try. They just, what? So far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. It's a verse. I love the disclaimer in there. Because some of it's not going to depend on you sometimes. What does depend on you? Hey, you commit it, you offer it, you serve it, you do it. But sometimes people are going to say, hey, appreciate it, but I'm moving on. That's fine. You can, you, can, you can walk away with confidence that you did your best. Right? We're not, we're not going to win everybody. Right? But verse 23, I do it all for the sake of the gospel. There's that underlying, overarching, end of the game principle that all of it s- sits on. That I might share with them in its blessings. Paul says, I'm going to serve all. And I'm going to serve all of them to benefit them. Them is a really powerful word. He says, I, I, that I might share with them. Who's the them? It's not just anybody. It's the people he's now including that would have been excluded in other conversations When we say all, what are we really pointing the finger at? The ones you would leave out, the ones you wouldn't hang out with, the ones you kind of have written off that you don't like, whatever it is. He says, no, I want to share with them. In what? Relationship with the Lord. It's an important distinction. We, We become relevant for the people around us because we value them and God values them and wants them to be one, one over. Well, may the Lord bless the reading of his word. Amen? I love this idea of culturally relevant and trying to see things through other people's eyes. I mean, my my parents, I think, were trying to teach me that when I was like two and four and six and as I was growing up and the whole thing. 
But boy, it takes a long time to learn it, doesn't it? It's almost like when mom and dad aren't around, I finally got my freedom, got my car, move out of the house, get a job, get married, whatever. I don't have anybody to tell me anymore, remind me anymore. And it's almost like that's a problem. I need a reminder. I got a phone call the other day. Uh, Julie and I were out of town, and I got a phone call from my youngest, my daughter, and she's crying. Uh, see, she had uh, tried to close the drapes. And she was home, you know, with the boys, and they were doing their thing, trying to be responsible and do their chores and the whole deal. And she was supposed to close the drapes at a certain time. And she went to close the drapes, and uh, she's crying because she ripped the drape in trying to close it. Now, mind you, let me give you a little background on these drapes, okay? Don't worry. Take many breaths. You're going to be fine, okay, when I explain this. See, I, I know these drapes. They're cheap. I put them in right? It was like eight to 10 years ago. They're, they don't have like the, the, the pull string and all the gadgetry and the whole deal. There's a rod and they slide it back and forth. That's it, right? Uh, they're super cheap. You can get them at any like store around here, probably super cheap. And I was all excited at the time because my wife was frustrated. We didn't have drapes and the whole thing and we got to have drapes and that and that. And I heard it enough times that I finally got the clue. Okay. It's a hint to you women. Say it enough times, they'll figure it out. Um, Went down to the store, found these really cheap drapes, decent color, kind of match. I put the rod up, put the drapes on, and scored all these points, right? Oh, we have drapes. And I was thinking to myself, and they were super cheap, and it was easier than I thought. And my goodness, after eight to 10 years, these things cost me like maybe 10 bucks a year if I average it around. So any guesses on the quality of these drapes? Any guesses? pretty easy after eight years, uh, 10 years of wear and tear hanging with the direct sun, you know, if you pull it a little bit, the thing's going to come apart. That's what happened. But she's crying because she doesn't know the difference. But when she calls and she's crying, she says, I broke the drape. I ruined the drapes or whatever. I'm not seeing it. And I'm envisioning this much worse scenario. And my blood is starting to boil and the whole thing. And then I'm realizing this, there's nothing that's going to come out of a harsh conversation right now. In fact, I can't even see it. And she's crying. It's like, don't worry about it, hon. Uh, thanks for trying. We'll talk about it later. Maybe when we get home, we can fix it no matter what it is. And the whole thing, she, she's trying to be consoled. And the conversation ends and we move on. A couple hours later, a couple days later, we come home. And did we talk about the drapes? No, life happened and we moved on and no big deal. And it wasn't even that big a deal. In fact, I saw the drapes where it ripped. There's a rip about this big where it kind of separated a little bit. But if, if you fold them right and let them hang right, you can. <laughs> Why is that funny? Oh, because you all would do the same thing, right? So, I, so it's been weeks and I go to close the drapes the other day. And as I'm closing the drapes, I see the tear where my daughter had done this thing. And I immediately start this, pro guys, I'm, Sorry if you're like me, but we got to get over this, okay? I'm talking to guys, when I, I mean, and I mean the male gender. I, don't, I have no experience with being a female, but I, I know guys, we do this sometimes. I immediately go into, okay, what's the conversation for educating my daughter f it, when next time I see her about why this happened and how she should do it properly so that we don't tear the drape and the whole, I'm, I'm, I'm formulating um, this teaching moment that I'm about to have with my daughter in a little bit, I move over to the other side and I go to pull the other side over. What happened? Why are you laughing already? You are not at first service. What happened? I tore, I ripped the drapes. I, I mean, 
I'm thinking about the idea of how I make the rules and give her instructions as to how she's going to do it next time. Although in the meanwhile, following the things of course that I'm about to tell her to do, and as I'm doing them, I rip the drapes. I thought to myself a couple of things. Wow, these really are cheap, <laughs> right? And that, that was very easy. And I had no idea what she went through. She was upset. She was crying. It was much easier to tear those drapes than I thought. And probably my response to her was inappropriate. I, I never trained her on the drapes. Right? She has no background on where the drapes came from or how easy they were put in or how easy they are replaced. Right? And I had this moment where I recognized that I was not relating to my daughter on her level. I was relating to my daughter on my level from up here. That was a problem. I want to ask you, have I talked to my daughter about the drapes since then? No. You see, you get it. There's certain things like once we figure out where they're coming from, we don't have to talk to them. We have to have compassion for them, understand them. Or we do talk to them, but we have a very different conversation. Right? That's what culturally relevant looks like, I think. Uh, Paul says it, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he says, hey, we're, if we're going to be the church, we need to be culturally relevant. And I think what that means, that what we get from this verse is this idea of conditional love. I was like, wait a minute, Scott, I'm, I'm, pretty sure, I'm pretty sure you said conditional love, but I know what you meant to say was what? Unconditional love. I mean, we're, we are the church of Christendom for many, many generations. We have talked about the idea of unconditional love, this phrase that doesn't appear in the Bible anywhere. Um, and I get that. God loves us. Jesus died for us on the cross, forgives us. We have salvation in him through his sacrifice, and there is unconditional love on his part towards us. I want to make a play on the word and introduce a different concept to you. Okay, so I need you to switch gears out of unconditional love, and I did this on purpose. Conditional love is when we start to love other people in their condition. Unconditional love is like, hey, no matter what, we're just going to love them. Yeah, that's great. How about you go another step and recognize the condition that they're in and love them according to the condition that they're in? Rather than just um, kind of, it's almost dismissive to say, well, I love every, everybody. I love all people of all races and all ages of all time. Yes, and now you've lumped everybody into one category and nobody gets to be an individual. Nobody has in, uh, individual value or the whole thing. How about if, you, if, if we valued differences to the point where we catered to them? In their condition, we're going to show conditional love by, by valuing the condition that people are in and addressing that condition. And then here's another one. We're also going to do it uh, on their conditions. You ever, you ever heard this phrase? I've heard this phrase. I've heard people say this phrase. The most indicting one was when, when I've said it. I feel very guilty about this. But I've, I've heard myself even say several times, I wanted to help them, but they didn't want the help the way I was willing to provide it. They wanted help, but then when I tried to help them, they didn't like the way in which I helped them. <sighs> Who's wrong? Careful. What if we, we dealt with people in the condition they were in and then we let them set the rules of engagement? 
yes, I want your help, but I need you to help me on Tuesday. Or I, I need you to only help me if you're going to this. If you're going to help, come along, but, but don't bring your kids. I can't handle kids right now. Whatever it is. I mean, people have different things. When they're hurt, when they're afraid, when they're uh, whatever, there's, there's certain things they can handle and there's certain things they can't. Right? I am allergic to dogs. Don't bring your dog. Well, you know, but I have to take care of my dog and the dog's important. The whole thing is, really? What if we started letting other people make the rules for the condition that they were in and how we could help them? That's what culturally relevant looks like. Right? So I want you to do unconditional love and conditional love. Which one's most important? Both. Okay, good. Excellent. Uh, so that's the first one. And here's where I want to part from tradition. We're going to go into a second passage. Because I think Paul is talking about a great concept. Uh, but I think Jesus tells a, a, a story that really exemplifies what is culturally relevant look like. And, and it's a story you've probably heard a bunch of times. It's one of the most famous stories of all times. It is the parable of the good how did you know that? Okay, one, I have to stop you now and I have to correct you. You didn't do anything wrong. I'm the one that said it. But it's actually the parable of the Samaritan. Now in your Bible, you can look it up and it says good Samaritan. But you read the story, never anywhere in the whole story does the word good show up. This is just a Samaritan, an average guy. I like taking good out of it because then it implies that it's normal or maybe expected. It wasn't supposed to be an exceptional thing. It's meant to be a regular normal thing that we do for everybody. We act like this Samaritan acted toward this beaten guy. Okay, that's a little extra, a little side. Okay, this story comes... Um, uh, from an exchange Jesus has, a very large crowd. He's teaching and doing a bunch of stuff and people are starting to realize there's more to this story and more to this guy than they realized. And, and, and this lawyer stands up and says, wait a minute, I, I want to ask some questions here. Now, do lawyers ask questions? Right? They, and they lead the witness. They want to entrap somebody into saying something. They're smart. They want to know, they want to understand. They, wanna, they want the logic behind it. Okay. Now I like this story because uh, when it comes to the Bible, if I were to ask you, like, who who do you resonate with? Like, what character in the Bible do you feel like you are? Some would say, oh, I'm kind of like Samson. I'm a fumbling idiot running around and accidentally get things right, and you know, by the grace of God, Amen. Or uh, I'm David. I'm like a man after God's own heart. Or I'm like Noah, or or one of the disciples. Maybe I'm like Paul. You know, if you're really pious or whatever. Like uh, me, I, I'm just gonna go simple. I'm just to say this lawyer might be the guy I best can with. Um, he might, I mean, I could see myself being this lawyer. I'm going to have an ex exchange with Jesus and kind of trying to understand where it goes. And I think by the end, the lawyer gets it. That's why I want to kind of recognize myself as him. Now, if the lawyer, if you think he didn't get it, then don't pair me with him. Okay. Cause I want to get it in the end regardless. All right. But be uh, behold, a lawyer stood up. This is uh, Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Great question. Great question. Watch Jesus' response. He said, Jesus said to him, uh, what is written in the law? And then great question. How do you read it? Love the implication there that we should be able to read the law, read God's word, read what he's sent to us through letters of other men and be able to discern on our own without necessarily having to have some, you know, trained philosophical guy for you to understand it. 
How does it read to you? That should be very encouraging to you. Uh, that f- I feel like that gave me license many years ago to actually dive in, right? Verse 27, and he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. He kind of answered, my heart will sing no other name, Jesus, Jesus, right? Oh, and by the way, my neighbor too, right? I'm going to love my neighbor too. Uh, and Jesus said to him, verse 28, I love how he answers this. He says, you are right, go do this and live. Good question. How do you read it? Oh, you read it there? You're right. Next question. <laughs> he's kind of like moving on, right? He's done. Now, the, the lawyer's not done because he, he's like, well, how do I do it? That's why I think I'm him. I want practical steps. Give me specifics. I want details. Don't give me generalities because, well, I take them all the wrong directions unless I have specifics. That's just the way I am, right? He said, you've answered correctly. Do this, you will live. Verse 29. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Give me a little clarity on this. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Wait a minute. Is he answering the question? You're not answering the question. Jesus, how rude. Are you ignoring him? Is Jesus being sarcastic? Maybe. I do think it's a spiritual gift, right? Uh, instead of answering the question, he, he breaks into a story that's going to answer the question. And maybe the story will answer the question better. I think it does. And I do think the lawyer gets it at the very end. We'll show it to you when we get there. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers. Um, one of the translations uh, translate that as raiders. <laughs> really like that translation. Fell among raiders. Like, yeah, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. But likewise, a Levite, when he came to that place and saw him, passed by on the other side. That's kind of interesting that he tells a story. He can pick any characters that he wants. He picks a priest and he picks a Levite first. Uh, priest and Levite actually go together. See, priests... Uh, they're the only ones that can go in the temple. They're the only ones that can do rituals, offer sacrifice. They're the holy tribe. In fact, of all 12 tribes, there's only one tribe that can do priestly duties. Any guesses? If they're, it's the Levites. So you got one of the highest in the priestly tribe, one of the highest, and he says, well, uh, I got stuff to do, and just keeps going. The second guy comes through. He's, he's of the priestly tribe, but has decided he's not going to do all the extra stuff to try and do it, be a priest. He's not going to go through all the training and all the rituals and all that kind of extra stuff. But, you know, I'm still the priestly tribe. But he's not doing anything about it. And it's interesting. you got two people, both from the priestly tribe, both called by God to be kind of his mouthpiece, his uh, intermediary between Drew, the Jews and God. And both of them, though they're meant to represent God either at a really high level or just a normal level, neither one of them decides to do anything about it. And it's really kind of an indictment on, on the Jews not following God the way they could, the way they should, uh, the way they would if they really knew who God was. Uh, instead, uh, they keep walking by on the other side. Uh, but verse 33, a Samaritan, as he journeyed, uh, uh, what kind of Samaritan? 
A, Samaria, there's no good there. See, I just want to point that. Uh, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had what? A compassion. You got your title, you're a Levite, or you got compassion, you got a heart. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Great phrase. Story's over, and Jesus now engages with the lawyer again. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. Did the lawyer get it? What's a neighbor do? Shows mercy. He, Jesus, um, instead of taking the questioning as offensive tries to engage the lawyer in a way that makes sense to the lawyer. Jesus becomes culturally relevant for the lawyer, right? Because what's going through the lawyer's mind? How's the lawsuit gonna go for this guy who was beaten and the two Levites walked by? Are we suing them or whatever? And uh, if, if we need to defend the guy that was beaten because someone unclean tended to him and brought him to the innkeeper, the lawyer's thinking through all the different ways that this is legally gonna play out. And then Jesus says, well, wait, no, who proved to be the neighbor? And the lawyer gets it. Outside of the legal argument, where was the mercy? He says, the one that showed him mercy, that's the one. And Jesus said to him, you're right. Go and do likewise. Next question. He kind of is ready to move on again. Absolutely love how that exchange goes. Uh, and may the Lord bless the reading of his word again. Amen? Amen. All right, so you got your first fill-in. Now we're working on the uh, second fill-in. Uh, the question that the lawyer asked to start the, the conversation is, uh, you know, how do, I get, how, do I, how do you get an eternal life? Give me the legal definition. Jesus answers him, makes him recite, you know, the Shema, the, you shall love the Lord your God and all your soul. And then, and then he says, you're right. Then the, the, the lawyer's next question is starting to get at the heart of the matter. Well, who is my neighbor? Wishing to justify himself. And we get into this story. And, and I think who is my neighbor is the right question with the wrong intent. You see, when he asks, who is my neighbor? He wants to know who qualifies. Now, if we jump back to the last passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul is the author. Who qualifies? I made you say the word over and over again, right? Who qualifies? All. See, so the lawyer's question is the wrong question, or is the right question, but it's the wrong perspective. It's not who qualifies as my neighbor. Now, if you change the intonation of the question without changing any of the words... Who is my neighbor? Now we're asking a different question. We're really asking, who are they? Not do they qualify, but who are they? What are they like? What are they going through? What's important to them? What's their track record? What are their fears? 
What are their mistakes? How do we help them? Who are they would have been a much better question. And we get to who are they through the story of the Samaritan when he shows mercy and the lawyer finally gets it. He saw the beaten guy as a guy in need. And he met him in his conditions. Didn't he show him conditional love? Why did he put him on the animal? Why did he put him on the beast, the donkey? Why? Come on, folks. If, we, if this room was full of kindergartners, we would have answered the question already. Right? Are you smarter than a kindergartner? Right? It's a new show. Right? Fifth grade was too hard. Why did he put him on the donkey? couldn't walk or didn't like walking or was too painful or he was too tired or incapable, whatever. Did the guy recognize the beaten man's condition and solve it? Yeah, in his condition, on his, on his terms. What about the oil and the wine? Is that something that um, Samaritans do or is that something that Jews do? You ever hear about Samaritans anointing with oil and doing wine? I, no, we... That's not even something that we practice. You know, if they did do it, it's because it was a merging of two cultures. And they, and they decided to adopt something. And, but the Samaritan treats this Jewish man within his cultural realm. You do oil and you do wine for this kind of thing, right? Well, why did you take him at the end? Because it was the fastest, easiest way to drop him off? No. When you say to the innkeeper, take care of him. He knew the guy needed care. That was his condition. He says, I want to know who this guy is, and I do. I'm paying attention. He's hurt. He has needs. I don't see him any, having any money. Why? Because the robbers, raiders, took all his money. So here's two denarii. In your condition, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cater to your condition. And he says, what do you say? When I come back, whatever more that you pay, I will pay whatever you spend. He knows the guy's going to need more money. And he says, no problem. I'm going I'm to handle it. Absolutely love the idea of figuring out who, who is my neighbor. Not who qualifies to get attention and service from me. No. But like Paul, I serve all. So I need to know who they are. Who are they? It's a big distinction. At four years old, you can't make it. And you're, as parents, you're, you're trying to teach your four-year-olds and five-year-olds and sometimes 18-year-olds and you know the 32-year-old that still lives in the basement, still trying to teach them the difference between that content, right? Uh, so that's one of the ways we do culturally relevant. And then uh, Luke 10, 36 and 37, it's the very end, very end of the thing. Uh, he asked the 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 lawyer, he says, all right, which one of the three was, was the right one? Is that what he asked him? Say no. Did, did he say which one of these three was right? Did he say which one of these three was godly? Do you remember the word that he used? Which one of these, not was the neighbor, proved to be the neighbor? Man, if I could teach you one thing, if you, I mean, really, I probably can't teach you very many things, but one of them that I really, really just want you to, the words that were selected that went into scripture are significant. 
They're statistically significant. If you're a math guy or a science guy, they're statistically significant, the words that were chosen to go into the phrases that God used in his book. Proved to be a neighbor. That sounds very different than was a neighbor, right? Proved to be a neighbor adds weight. He did something about it. Anybody watching would look and go, oh, he's a neighbor. Really? How do you know? Because he proved it. Really? How did he prove it? Put him on the donkey, oil and wine, two denarii, talked to the innkeeper, came back and paid the extra bill. He proved it. And I absolutely love what he proved. What did he prove? One of his original questions. Who is my neighbor? And it's almost like Jesus says, well, yeah, maybe it's the right, right question with the wrong perspective. Let me show you what the right perspective for that question is. But how about we say that the question first was the wrong question outright? The real question is, how do you be the neighbor? That's how we do culturally relevant. We stop asking who they are per se until we figured out how do we be a neighbor. If I get good at being a neighbor, then I can start asking who they are all and I can start adjusting to them and helping them and the whole thing. But the, he flips it on the lawyer. Not who is my neighbor, but are you a neighbor? No pointing at them. No, pointing at you, buddy. Ah, that's why I think I'm the lawyer. Of all the characters in the Bible, I relate to this guy, I think, the most. You see, we're supposed to meet people where they are. Last week, if we're unified as a body and we understand who Christ is, that's how we do it the best. But once we're unified, the next thing we got to do, we got to go out and start getting culturally relevant. Super important. I want to draw you just to this last thing. This is verse. It's, it's really, really is one of my favorite verses. Did a paper on it in seminary and the whole thing. Uh, 1 Corinthians 9, 22. It's the very top right there. To the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. Is, is God in that sentence anywhere? You see the word God, Jesus, anywhere? No? Okay. Just want to make sure you saw that. Uh, I have become all things. Who, who's become all things? Okay. I become all things to all people that by all means I, I might save some. Um, is, is God in the second sentence? You know, God doesn't show up anywhere in that whole verse. Symbolically, is God in the sentence? He's all over it. All right? But watch this. Last phrase after the comma. That by all means, I might save. What just happened there? I'm going to go, I'm going to go um, Sunday school on you. Okay. Churches, Christianese. Okay. Who saves? Jesus, God, right? All of the, the, both count, right? You get it right on the test. Either one of those you answer, right? How is it then that it says that I might save? I thought God saved. Wait, wait, did you go to the cross? No, 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 you didn't. Who was on the cross? Jesus, right? Who has the power to forgive sin, Right? Hey, buddy, get up and walk. Hey, you can't say get up and walk. Oh, really? How about, how about so that you know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins, I say get up and walk. He heals the guy who's in the, in, in, in the pallet that dropped through the roof and the four guys and the whole thing. That guy gets up and walk. And why does Jesus do that for that guy? So that you may know that the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins. Sins.
hasn't gone to the cross, by the way, yet. That'll stretch your theology. So who saves? Jesus. God the Father, Holy Spirit. That's it. And yet Paul says that I might save some. Whew, try to connect those two dots. How, how, how do you bridge that gap? Here's how you do it. God gets credit always, all the time. Amen? Amen. Who does he want to use as he does it? Yes. Me. Us is great. I'm, I hope you get to be involved. My answer needs to be me. I get to be part of the process. And I hope that you say it that way as well. I need to be someone who's culturally relevant, part of the church, acting like the church in ways that attain success. He said winning, right? Of other people on, on their conditions, the way they are. How cool is that? You get to be on the team. And not just on the team. You get to be a star on the team. Is Jesus going to save him? Yes. Does the Holy Spirit lead him? Yes. But what's your role? Mm, small. But it's a role. Here, here's this one. Here's a fun one. If God's going to save him, he's going to save him no matter what, right? Amen? Do you want to be in it or miss out on it? And be part of it? I mean, he's going to save him no matter what. Great. And then we know who gets the real credit for it. Awesome. But who gets to play in the game? You've been on a team and you won the whole thing, but you didn't score. How's that feel? Awesome. We won. I get a ring or a shirt or one of those blue ribbons that you never see again, right? Because it goes in the basement. But you were on the team. You got to wear the uniform. That's what it's about. All this boils down to a question for you. Where do you have influence? Where's your road from Jerusalem to Jericho and who's on it? Who are the all in your life that you could help, that you could see them for who they really are, that you could have compassion on them? Maybe let them ride your donkey, right? I'm sorry, I can't help myself. I have to make jokes. Church needs to be fun, amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you that we get to be on the team. Thank you, Lord, that it is true. It's your finished work on the cross, your resurrection, your ascension, your forgiveness of sin, your love, your grace. It is all you that saves us. And yet at the same time, you let us be part of the process. You let us think, feel, engage. Help us to do that, Lord. Think, feel, and engage. Pray, Lord, that we would do that to be culturally relevant. That we might see those around us going through things we're probably not aware of. That we might draw them closer to you. Connect them to you. Help us to be all things to all people that by all means we might save some. And then Lord, we thank you for the offering they're about to receive. Pray you use it to help us do just that. To be a culturally relevant church. And so we, we thank you, Lord, for this offering. Pray you and ask that you would bless it and that those that are guests or visiting feel no obligation to give. We pray this in your son's name. Name.